Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Regarding Consciousness. I am Jennifer Cahill, the CEO of OptiMatch, and it is such a pleasure to have here today with us a very special guest who came highly referred by a mutual friend of ours, Ian. So deep gratitude to Ian for connecting us with today's guest, Paul Zack. Paul's work, wow. When I first got a chance to connect with Paul and learn about it about a couple weeks ago, I was really excited and quite frankly, titillated by some of the projects that he's working on as a behavioral neuroscientist and also top author of the book immersion, which is also the name of his company immersion. He is pioneering in the space of neuroscience and even has a fascinating new app that we'll talk about a little bit in today's episode called Tuesday that can help you real time understand how related or unrelated or connected or safe you feel. I'll let him explain it scientifically a little bit better than that to you. Paul, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And I'm so grateful to Ian for having connected us. I am too. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, I I probably botched explaining what Tuesday is. Please do our listeners and viewers a favor. Explain this incredible app that you've created that, by the way, is free to download and works with any sort of wearables that you might have. Share with me a little bit about that. You demonstrated that for me on our last call, Paul, and I was just excited about it. Such amazing leaps that technology is making as you show us with this app. So let's start with a name, Tuesday. Yes. What is that about? <laughs> it can't be Monday. We know Monday's not awesome. Friday's already happy. Yeah, so we really want you to be able to have the best Tuesday ever, every day. So how do you do that? So basically, we have four things we can control that have a substantial impact on our satisfaction with life sleep, diet, exercise, and the quality of our social relationships. So the first three, easy to measure, no problem at all. The fourth, difficult to measure. So how rich are my social relationships right now? How much am I enjoying this conversation? I don't know, compared to what? Compared to my kids? Uh, Actually, they talk back to me. Compared to my dog, right? Dog's perfect. So, um, So my research in my academic lab at Claremont Graduate University over the last 20 years identified the way the brain values social emotional experiences. Mm. Awesome. We did that with blood draws. We do that with electrophysiology, measuring the electrical activity of the nervous system. And then when we launched this company six years ago, uh, one of the products we released is a product to help people build their emotional fitness. That is to have enough social emotional interactions to actually build up our ability to absorb the negative hits that life's going to give us. And so we're measuring two primary things. One is how the brain values these social emotional experiences. And as you said, the second is our psychological safety physiologically. So the humans can bring us joy. They can bring us love, comfort, or they can drive us nuts, right? So you've seen the humans, you're aware of both. And so those two dimensions are measurable. And as you said, we've done all this algorithm writing in the cloud and we can pull data from a smartwatch and infer brain activity in real time so that people have a goal, a ring to close, just like steps, right? So steps is a great 20th century metric for physical health, but we think that emotional health is necessary because it's actually more important to have a rich social network to extending your lifespan than is quitting smoking. Although people should smoke for sure, but that's how important social interactions are. So great. 
they're important. What the heck do I do with that without a way to measure? Yeah. So this is such a fascinating topic as you and I were talking offline a couple of weeks ago when we connected. That is, it's funny, we're looking at two sides of the same coin. We're looking at this from OptiMatch without looking at the neuroscience of it. We're looking at how do people self-identify as what their motivating factors are and then overlying that. I would be so curious to do a co-experiment with you at some point in time to see how our data correlates to what your data is finding, i.e. do people who are motivated by the same thing match similarly well in a form of safety on your app. So tell me about this. I can hear inquiring minds want to know, how do we begin to sense safety? And what happens if this app tells us, hey, I'm not feeling safe, but 90% of the time I'm feeling really distrustful or at, at dis-ease with people? How do we then remedy that? Are there remedies in the app that you provide? Yeah, great question. So first of all, when we're having a conversation like this, when I'm cooperating with someone, engaging with them, our brains tend to uh, physiologically correlate. So that's first of all interesting, right? So if I'm having an interaction with you and we're at loggerheads, we have friction, then we're not going to see that level of correlation. So the app actually has these circles. If two people using the Tuesday app near each other, then the circles will be far or close or may even overlap. So it'll actually identify the degree of physiologic synchrony between individuals. My hypothesis, consistent with your business, is that in fact, when we have similar personality types, our overlaps are going to be much higher. So I remember being at happy hour with a bunch of friends and invited a friend who I've known for many years, but not a close friend, uh, who's a physician. And she was just oppositional to everything I said. And we're yelling at each other. I like her a lot. She's really nice. We were, the rest of the people are looking at us like, what's going on? And it's not that she would just say things that were unsupported. I'm like, where's the evidence for that? Well, I had a friend tell me like, that's not data, right? That's not support. I'm a scientist. Give me freaking support. Like weird things. We should bus low-income kids to high-income neighborhoods. We tried that experiment a hundred times. It failed completely. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Yeah, but I had a friend whose kid did that. It was perfect. Okay. Sample size of one. Anyway. I like her a lot, but we had friction, right? And I gave her a hug when we were done. I said, I'm sorry I yelled at you. This has been a fun conversation. I like it. But do I want to have her back at happy hour? Probably not. Yeah. So the app will, sorry, pop up and say, hey, something really frustrating happened to you? Make a note of it. Or something really amazing happened to you? Make a note of it. So as we become reflective on our own unconscious emotional states, we learn how to modulate those, right? So again, for my friend who I was having frictions with, what I probably should have done is take her to coffee. I probably should do that now. Take her to coffee one-on-one and go, hey, you're awesome. I like you a lot. Let's talk about something that's not going to be so politically charged or whatever. And and it's fine. We're still friends. It's not going to, I'm not going to break that relationship. But I think having that insight, oh, that was also wasn't a great experience for her probably. She just want to go to happy hour and have a sort of friction with me. So I think just having, making those unconscious experiences conscious gives us a chance to modulate them reflect on them. And then honestly, Jennifer, my whole career has been creating knowledge and technologies to help people curate their lives for greater happiness. And so if I know the people I'm around who give me so much joy, so much immersion, and I know the people I don't, or the places or the activities, then I can begin to make choices that help me live more effectively. Yeah, it's fascinating. What I'm hearing you share is actually something another friend of mine, Dr. Roland McCready, who I think you guys would hit it off from uh, HeartMath. He's the director of research up there. They've done similar studies around heart coherence, heart-brain coherence. And one of my favorite topics that they've done is that 
they did a study. I think it was 40 people, so a sizable sample size. They did 40 people in the study, and they had, I think it was 10 groups of four. And in these groups, you had three people who had been trained in a coherence exercise. So imagine you are at a happy hour with somebody who's contentious, or you're at a co-working space or wherever it might be. There's chances are there's going to be somebody who might be irksome to you. And so they found these people. And in these 10 groups, they had one person in each group who was not in a coherent state scientifically. There's a way they measure that, HRV, heart rate variability, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And what happened was if you took one person who is quote unquote incoherent, scientifically speaking, and three people who were coherent, the three coherent people would bring the incoherent person into greater coherence, which I just thought was a fascinating study. And I I think it's very apropos for what we see happening in the world right now. There is a lot of incoherence and divisiveness in the world right now, not just at happy hour with friends though also at the global level. And I think the invitation is, how do we, to what you just so beautifully touched on there, Paul, how do we begin to observe our triggers? How do we begin to notice them, use this app, use whatever software or tools you might have in your tool belt to begin to bring our awareness to our state of mind, to our being, to how safe or unsafe we feel and start to notice every time somebody brings something up about children, do I get defensive? Do I get reactive or about money or about politics? I think it could be a phenomenal way to track what triggers us and causes us to become more reactive. That's a great point. What we've shown in published uh, research is that if I connect, just like you mentioned, to my in-group, people like me, then I interact with someone from my out-group, someone who's different from me, some identifiable way. Once I connect to people in my in-group, I treat the out-group like an in-group. So same thing, same kind of mechanism in which these brain systems for social creatures like humans are so blunt that once I connect, I'm open to all kinds of connections. So I really think we need to be around the other humans, and particularly people who are not like ourselves, so we can get to know them. And that one-on-one, it's easy to to derogate a group of people, those people. But if I see one person, I'm going to probably treat them pretty nicely. And so I think it's building that one-on-one relationship that's really important. As you said, that difficult person at work, the Dalai Lama had this great quote from one of his books. And he said, not only should we tolerate difficult people, we should celebrate them Mm -hmm. because they give us a chance to practice real compassion. And I think of that, I, I worked with a guy who clearly disliked me, told me to my face, later turned out he was bipolar, and it just was a difficult person. And once I realized, oh, this person, his adult children don't talk to him, he has a very bad life, and yet he acts out, and it's not appropriate. But I felt real compassion, like this poor person is suffering a lot, and they modulate that internal pain by externalizing it. Again, not something you should do, you should have therapy, go on medication, but I felt real compassion for this person, particularly when that person wasn't, I gained enough status where this person wasn't, said, you'll never uh, succeed here over my dead body. Hey, I just got hired, man. I'm just trying to do my job. <laughs> Leave me alone. And then once I got promoted, it was like, oh, this poor person is just, they're threatened by everything. They're afraid of the world. So I think having that chance to establish compassion, and as you said, bring them into the fold as much as possible. Yeah, it's so beautiful what you bring up. There's two things that came strongly to my mind as you were sharing that, Paul. 
one, ironically today, you know how Facebook says you have a memory with this person on this date. And I was reviewing it. I'm barely on Facebook five minutes a day. And I was like, oh, I was just curious who one of the people referenced was. And sure enough, about two or three years ago, I posted something from Pema Trodrand. You know her work? She's, I think, a famous Buddhist thought leader. And it was the story she told. And in the story, there was this brilliant teacher whose students came from all over to study with. And they, the teacher that would have them do really obtuse things, like, for example, cutting itty bitty pieces of grass and then putting them in another place of the lawn. Like, why do that? But it's mindfulness, right? So there's one guy there who's bellying and complaining and doesn't want anything to do with it. And everybody is getting like bristled by this guy, right? And it gets worse and it gets worse and it culminates in the guy storming off leaving and getting in his car and going. So they tell the teacher, they're like, teacher, we're so sorry, but this man just left, you know, the ashram. He just went off his car and the teacher's, oh no, he can't leave. And they're like, but no, he was causing problems. It's a good thing he left. He's no, he can't possibly leave. So the teacher jumps in his car, goes and chases this guy down and brings him back. And people are like, sir, we really respect and admire you. Why did you do that? And he said, because I pay that man to be here. And people like, who would have thought that, right? I just happened to see this story that I had posted a few years ago. And the other thing that it makes me think of, to your point about the people who might be challenged in whatever way, whether it's bipolar, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction, whatever people are going through, it's so tempting, Paul, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to be like, oh, you're bad, you are different. And then people have this label. There was a really prominent figure, a wonderful person I know, who often had been given a hard time. And despite coming from deep success and having everything that somebody could want, he didn't always feel, he didn't feel like he was adding value. And recently I had shared something with him and told him how extraordinary he was and what a big heart in this. And now it's beautiful because people everywhere, he's teaching at conferences and meeting people. And now that he saw that I saw that little glimmer, that beautiful little glimmer of light in him, now that he said, oh, you puff up your chest. Oh, yeah, I am. Like, I do have some really great qualities. Then it's beautiful because then it allows other people to reflect that back to you where you might not have ever been able to see or acknowledge that piece of yourself. Yeah, we have a really interesting data on this because we've measured this physiology, physiologic measure of connection in thousands of people around the world, <clears throat> everywhere, rainforest of Papua New Guinea, that we find this mechanism for connection is active in 95% of the people we measure at any point in time. So it means almost everybody is going to behave appropriately, right? We're, we're going to fit into the social situation we're in. Who are those 5%? So about two of that 5%, so a little less than half, have traits of psychopathology. So they got born bad, they got maltreated. Psychopaths have genes and environment interaction. We've examined, measured criminal psychopaths in a treatment facility, and they just don't have that kind of empathy, that connection that most of us have. And those individuals you need to cut out of your life. So that's 2% of the population. Avoid them. They're not going to reform. They're not going to get better. And the other of that 5%, the other 3% are people who are good people having a bad day. So this system is intact for connection, for empathy, but they're super stressed out. And stress is one of the potent inhibitors of appropriate social behavior. So social connection of fitting in. 
then those are the people that really need our compassion. It's like the man who was so angry when people were cutting the grass, right? So for those people, they really deserve our compassion. Again, some people are just not going to be reformed, but we don't know what trauma people have been through. In my first book, The Moral Molecule, I talk about research we've done with women who has children who have had severe sexual abuse. And even in that case, these systems for social connection and about half these women, this was, they were resilient against that abuse, right? They, they were able to hold a job, have relationships, half weren't, right? And so again, we don't know what trauma people have been through. We don't know, we don't know how they, how much social support they had, how much their genetics, their clinical care affects them. And so I think we, it, really have to accept people the, for the way they are. That's what I've tried to do. And having spent a lot of time with psychiatric patients, we're all weird. I'm weird. You're weird. We're all weird. And we're going to be weird at different times. We're going to be inconsistent. That's also one of the real key findings of neuroscience is that this kind of sense of unified self, Jennifer from a year ago is Jennifer now. No, your brain's adapting to the new environments and you're changing. And you don't even know you're changing because it's gradual. But when you haven't seen someone for a year or two and they not only look different because we're aging and all that, but they behave differently. That's not unexpected. That's expected. That's exactly what our biology is doing, right? It's guiding us to be as successful as possible biologically in the new environment. So it just means we've really got to accept people for who they are. I love that. My mother had a great quote about my dad. <laughs> and she said, my dad's not the most empathetic guy. It's just not, he's not the loving, I'm going to cuddle you. It's, he gives you a hug. It's like one of those, don't touch me too hugs, but he'll throw out and I love you. And so my mom had this thing she always told me when I was growing up. She said, honey, going to your dad and expecting to get like love and nourishment is like going to the hardware store and buying bread or trying to buy bread. You just can't. You can't. Right. As much as you might want a loaf of bread, if you're going into the hardware store, you're going to the wrong place. And I actually, I was speaking with somebody about this recently. Sometimes people have it that people are bad or wrong. Like a friend might disappoint you or a loved one or family member or romantic partner. Yet what if, Paul, people are doing the best that they can in that moment? And the way that we know that is that's what they're doing. So that's why we know in that moment that was the best they were capable of. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's where compassion comes from. On the other hand, I do want to hold people responsible for their decisions. It doesn't mean that if you've done something that's injured me or injured someone else, that you're not responsible. Absent brain damage, psychotic, delusional states, different ballgame. But I do think we have to um, protect ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a level of, in some individuals, what's called pathological altruism, where you just are so concerned about others that you damage yourself. You're, so I think you have to set those boundaries, right? So people can take advantage of you. And yeah, we don't know people's motivations, but all we can see is their actions. So sweeps or infer what they're doing, but yeah. hopefully not too many people. I think all of us have had, we've been on the planet long enough. We've had two or three interactions where someone was really taking advantage of us. And you had to say, okay, you got to cut this off. Like I can't be around you. I don't know what you're doing. And that's okay too. It doesn't mean we have to be giving to everybody. We have to pick our battles. Yeah, I really appreciate the positive resistance on that. It's a term I like to use that I learned from a brilliant woman named Alison Armstrong, where she said, your best business partners, friends, loved ones should always give you positive resistance. I think you're right. I think it is yes and. On the one hand, I see it as assume best intentions. 
However, like you're, you just said, people's actions speak louder than words. So if we're assuming best intentions, I have what I like to call the three strikes and you're out rule. If somebody makes a mistake one time and you assume best intentions, oh my gosh, to your point, they're part of that 3% or where they're having a really tough day, their mom, their dad, their loved one, something happened we might not be aware of. So you right. give people a little bit of grace. Then you give them a second time and then their cat dies or something else. And then I saw this a lot when I was in the recruiting field. I remember one woman killed her grandparents. This is terrible to say three or four times. And I'm like, different grandma than the one who died two weeks ago. Like, nice. <laughs> I was like, I just want to be clear here. And again, you assume best intentions. However, you do hold firm boundaries. So you give somebody an opportunity to self-correct. I need your help. Can I count on you for this, et cetera? What do you need in order for me to be able to count on you for this? And then again, if they repeat the same thing over and over, by the third time, it's like you get a choice to hold a firm boundary. It, you touched on this earlier. I remember doing a class or more of a course and a talk I used to give about how to deal with office jerks. And we talked about the three types of boundaries where you have porous boundaries, which leads to people who might be gossipy or victimized or whatever that might look like, or emotional vampires. Then you have health boundaries, which we all strive towards. And then you have rigid boundaries, which to some extent, if they're so rigid, could tie into psychopathy or controlling or Machiavellian types. So I thought that was interesting. Like, how do we all find that equilibrium of what a healthy boundary looks like for us? Yeah, I've talked about the people hiring for lots of organizations like you have and hiring, firing lots of people. And I always think the best firing I've done, first of all, they're coming. You try to remediate them. There's no surprise. And generally their shoulders drop. You're like, Jennifer, we've tried everything here. I just don't think this is working out. Like I, we both thought it would be a great place for you when we tried for three months and hey, we're going to give you some couple of weeks or a month to find a new job. And you're awesome. You just don't fit in here. And those people, their shoulders drop. They go, yeah, I'm so frustrated. I, I just not my place. Those people often will take me to lunch because I work with them. We try to help them meet their goals, right? The, the people who are stealing stuff, whatever, go. You need to go now. Don't ever come back here. I hate you. I didn't say that. Those are easy. That's the easy fire. But the people who really have tried and we really thought they'd fit in, Many of those people are still friends. They're still in my network. We still talk because it just wasn't a good fit. So again, that's the benefit of the doubt, right? So I want to make sure that I'm so clear that we've tried so hard. And hey, I was the boss. I hired you. It's my mistake. It's not your mistake. I thought you fit in perfect here. Or I thought we had enough growth or revenue so that we could hire five people and we just didn't. And it was it's my fault. So I screwed up. So I'll write you a great letter of recommendation. I'll use my network, help you try, try to find a job. So I think the world's a very small place. It's one degree of separation for everybody now. So I'm going to be nice to everybody whenever possible, right? Because you never know. And again, maybe they're just having a bad week or whatever. And I don't want to hold that. I've had a bad week. You've had a bad week. We've all definitely, we're human beings. Yeah. It's about extending that. So let's say, just to take it back, because I want to touch on one more time before we wrap today's show. I'm so excited yeah. about what you're doing with Tuesday and how it's going to help people. What is one of your favorite things that you've discovered out of developing the Tuesday app? Um, really, that's a great question. I, I think those factors, those kind of peak immersion moments that give me a lot of joy. So Tuesday syncs to my calendar. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, it'll actually tell me at the end of the day what my best two hours were. And then I go look at my calendar and go, oh yeah, I was on a Zoom or I was on a podcast. or I, So I'm figuring out what really brings me joy. Like you, Jennifer, I do a lot of public speaking 
And I'm a real introvert. You can't tell because I'm faking it. But but when I see that stage, I just light up. I'm like, I actually love being on stage. I can spend 12 hours in my lab, not talk to anybody and be completely satisfied. But I'm like, oh yeah, I need human behavior. What I found for myself is that even as an introvert, I need to invest more in relationships. And in particular, as you said, like with OptiMatch, I like those friends of mine who kind of call BS on me, who can be so honest, and hopefully I can be honest with them. No, that's a terrible idea. So I have a friend who's a very famous professor who had a, I think, small midlife crisis, decided to run for Congress. And he talked to a bunch of friends. He said, hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing. Apparently, I was the only friend who said, are you out of your mind? One open mic, and you say something that was just slightly off, and that's going to be in the headlines in the paper. You could lose your job. It's a famous textbook he wrote. He makes a lot of money from that. Like, why would you risk all this stuff just to try to run for Congress? And you don't have a history of being a, in the city council. You're just paying right to, to Congress. And anyway, he, he did run twice, wasn't elected, I think had a fun time. But he later said, hey, I really appreciate that you were the one person who felt comfortable to say, no, don't do that. So but he's a dear friend. I, I love him like a brother. So he knows that. And I think that's the kind of people we need in our lives as much as possible. We have lots of people in our lives and they have all different kinds of relationships, but to figure out like, oh, his name is Sean. When I see Sean, like that's a peak moment for me because he lives in a different state and we're super good friends, but I never see him. And so when I do, I just, is so valuable. That kind of information about my unconscious emotional responses that I couldn't really understand unless I had some kind of technology. So yeah, it's free. We made a real conscious decision to say, hey, let's let this out for free. Now, businesses who get anonymized, aggregated data pay for that, health insurers and corporate wellness programs. But let's help the humans have insight into their own behaviors, what drives their happiness. And again, for happy people, live healthier and live longer. So now we're right in my sweet spot on what I really care about, helping people live happier, healthier, and longer. Isn't that the dream for all of us? What would life be like if we could live happier, healthier, and longer? And thank you so much, Paul. We've been here today with Paul Zak, a brilliant behavioral neuroscientist, founder of Immersion, also wrote the book Immersion. Paul, two things for you. One, are there any closing thoughts, anything you'd love to leave our audience with? Maybe a tidbit, something I didn't get to ask you. I think the most important thing that we talked about, uh, I'll just reinforce is that everyone's weird and we're going to have good days and bad days in ourselves. And let's not take it too personally. So if you see weird behavior for others, they, you know, they may be hungry. They may be cranky. We've all been there. Tolerance and acceptance, I think, are the key to a mature relationship and, and maybe a little sense of humor. How about that? I love that. That's one of my favorite things years ago. One of, I, there were so many people who taught me about this, about stances. And I remember learning that a lot of us have these traditionalized stances of mother, child, father, child, playmate, sibling, admirer, just to name a few. And what happens is so often when we shut down and get triggered is because we're going into the child of father, child, or the father of trying to dominate or whatever it might be. And so often to your point, Paul, if we can allow a little play and fun, if we can tease each other and go playmate sibling with one another, it opens up just this beautiful space of play and fun and ease and happiness, which I know you touched on earlier. So Paul, please tell our listeners and viewers, where can they connect with you? Find out about this incredible work. We'll include the Tuesday link to the app as well in the show notes. Where would people find out? Thank you. You can email me at getimmersion.com, immersion with an I. 
and just Google my name. Lots of things will come up, TED Talks and multiple books and all kinds of things. But if you're listening and you have more questions, feel free to email me. I'm happy to engage with anybody who's listening to this podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's always a pleasure, a joy, and an honor to get to speak with thought leaders like yourself. And it is my joy to get to share this with you wherever you're listening in from. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your listening. And may you have a little bit more ease and be able to engage with people in a meaningful way that brings both you and other people more joy. In fact, I'll leave you with one final thing that one of my mentors said, always leave people better than you found them. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S dot com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.